Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. In this episode, we are going to be talking about the short story, The Archonology of Love by Caroline M. Yochim. This story was published in Lightspeed Magazine in 2019, which might make this the most recent thing that we have ever covered on this show. That might be true. Uh, This story was also commissioned to us to cover by a very generous Patreon supporter. Thank you so much. We love getting these commissions. It's uh, a break from our normal reading. It introduces us to writers we probably wouldn't have come across otherwise. And we almost always universally love the stories that we've been commissioned. and, And this story is no exception. Yes, thank you indeed so much. As I was joking about the the recency of this, but that's something that I feel viscerally that I'm out of touch with what is being published in the now in in short fiction and long fiction as well because all the reading that we do is for or at least that I do I won't speak for you Brandon but all the reading I do is for the show and of course our shows are kind of historical in nature certainly this podcast we're still in the 1970s uh Brent and I are still in the 1990s over uh, for Neil Gaiman and the other shows are kind of a, a hodgepodge so it's only when we get commissions or, or nominations over on Elder Sign and ATOS that we get to do real contemporary fiction. And it's great when we get to do that. So I was very pleased that we had a chance to do that. And in particular, because this is a great story. This story is definitely the best new Star Trek story. And it really, <laughs> really hit the spot for me. I, I'm joking, of course, right? Because it is not actually a Star Trek story. But It could be. This story has all the hallmarks of a great Trek story. It's just a a really awesome, high-concept sci-fi story that then also has some moral questions thrown in and then also has a high dose of wonder. It just filled me with just joy and and surprise. I I loved it, and I can't wait to talk about it. So uh, let's just do it, Brandon. Uh, Walk us through the Archonology of Love. Well, before we jump into the story proper, I want to point out here at the top that one of the features of the story are these bits of text in italics. They often mark a new section of the story. And indeed, the story begins with one of these italic sections that tells us what kind of story we're in. This is a love story. So that's what we're on the lookout for. That's what the story is orienting us towards. Our main character is Dr. Jones, though not the famed archaeologist Indiana, (laughs) but the famed archronologist Saki Jones. She's on a ship orbiting New Mars, and it's clear that she's in mourning. Her husband, MJ, had gone on ahead of her and her son to study alien civilizations, Um, But the colony on New Mars collapsed somehow. And so Dr. Jones and her research team have come to inspect the Chronicle to see if they can't find out what has gone wrong. There's some pressure from the ship's captain to accelerate the research. And there's also a question of whether Dr. Jones should even be the lead researcher to begin with. Wouldn't her desire to see MJ again create a bias in the research that could lead the research into the Chronicle in the wrong direction? Now, Saki herself is really concerned about this, but she's visited by her grad student, Hyun Sik, uh, who really sympathizes with her position. He 
learned a little bit about her conceptual struggles here, her her struggles with whether or not she should lead the research while having, uh, you know, intimate conversations or at least close confidential types of conversations with Saki's son, who he's dating. Uh, Hyunsik reminds Saki that his parents died when the colony collapsed and that actually everyone on the research team is affected by the loss of the new Mars colony somehow. So anyone who'd lead the expedition, who might be the best qualified researcher, would demonstrate a little bias in their research approach. But anyway, in terms of the structure of the story, it's time for Saki Jones and Hyun Sik to head out to plan the expedition into the Chronicle. I love the opening of this story. I'm just going to comment on it from the uh, the beginning. I'll just go through from there. And I mean, just here is the very first sentence. This is a love story, the last of a series of moments when we meet. And it's italicized, as you said, Brandon. But when you first read this line, the fact that it is italicized doesn't convey any specific information to you, right? But it will eventually. And so it's a very clever move because then... In the next paragraph, which is really the start of the story, we meet our protagonist. We learn that her partner has just died. And so it does indeed seem right that it is going to be a love story. Now, I also am just immediately interested in this world, the speculative setting of this story. Uh, Colonizing other planets is just gold to me. Uh, I don't get to read (laughs) nearly enough of that now. I mean, there were days in my youth where I would just spend, you know, 10 straight hours reading stories about colonizing other planets, and I I miss that so much. Of course, also, there's bonus points if there's a long-dead alien civilization to study on one of these planets, which this story also has, although that is... You know, it's really just barely teased here in the opening. Nonetheless, it's here. We also get some kind of you know, technology or something. Uh, it doesn't make sense to us, right? But it seems that there is some way for the record of this lost colony to be accessed. Also, hey, there's a colony that's been lost in a mysterious plague that no one's ever encountered before. I want to know more about that, too. And so really what I'm driving at here is that there are a number of hooks, like just a lot of hooks in this opening section. There are enough for everybody, really, no matter what your speculative fiction proclivities might be. And that's just really awesome storytelling. I mean, this is how you can sell stories to magazines is by giving, you know, an entry point, making an entry point for a wide array of uh, of a potential audience. It really is amazing. And it's awesome. And that bit of orienting text right at the start lets you know that you're not going to set your expectations on Dr. Jones being uh, an adventurer on the colony of New Mars. We're going to be focusing on the emotional life of the character. And that's exactly the right move to orient the reader with what they should towards what they should be paying attention to and then throwing all of these awesome hooks at them. I mean, it's really such a good technique. Yeah, this is definitely a story that had me thinking about my own attempts at selling stories to magazines in the, you know, basically this same contemporary market and uh, realizing all the things I'm I'm doing wrong. And uh, so I think <laughs> this is actually a great little uh, masterclass in how to write for the magazine market as it exists now, for sure. 
Yeah, definitely something that uh, I'm going to have to examine more closely to alter my approach as well, because I don't think readers want three pages of shopping and eating uh, pasta as a, as an intro to a science fiction <laughs> story. But it's what I want. So <laughs> we are all learning. All right, let's continue along with this story. There's some more italicized text at the start of the next section. One thing to know is that this bit of text has a speaker and the speaker uses the pronoun we. So they, the speakers, claim not to have created the Chronicle. They have only discovered it. And then we learn that any visit to the Chronicle alters the temporal record in the same way that any archaeological dig, quote, muddles the dirt at an excavation site. It's implied that these early human expeditions into the Chronicle really screwed up the temporal record, but they are forgiven. These humans are forgiven by the ones who are speaking because the ones who are speaking have made their own errors in their encounters with humans, and they've caused some real harm too. So not only are they forgiving us, they're also asking for forgiveness. All right, now we're back to the story with Saki here. Before the expedition into the Chronicle begins in earnest, uh, Saki had to spend a lot of time in departmental meetings, debating the spatial location that would begin the archronological dig, so to speak. Should the research team enter the Chronicle at the warehouse? to see if some kind of alien artifact set off the plague at the new Mars colony? Or should they begin at the hospital to see maybe if they can determine the causes of the plague? Uh, Dr. Lee, who is Saki's frenemy, I guess, and colleague, <laughs> thinks the hospital is the best place to begin. But Saki thinks the warehouse is the best place to begin. And Saki thinks this partially because MJ believed that the plague was alien in origin and that it could be traced to an artifact that he and his team had dug up in their xenoarchaeological research on New Mars. At this point, one of the students basically calls out Saki during the meeting, insinuating that Saki only wants to check out the warehouse to get a glimpse of MJ. Um, and here we get a technical term that's used for mating partners in this future. They're called life love. So MJ is Saki's life love. But Dr. Lee shuts down any attempt to bring ad hominem attacks into what really ought to be a scholarly debate about where they should enter the chronicle. Eventually, Hyunsik presents a rousing argument for the warehouse. And so, you know, the matter is settled. This is where they're going to enter the chronicle. I'm really interested in this argument about site location. I mean, ultimately, our protagonist is going to turn out to be right, but I I think it's a terrible choice. Uh, I absolutely would begin <laughs> at the hospital, at least based on the information that we have at this point in the story, right? As I was reading this and being really invested in this argument, I found myself totally disagreeing with the protagonist here. 
I, I'm on Dr. Lee's side as well throughout the story. And I think that's just based on my discomfort on being exposed to so many protagonist emotions, maybe, <laughs> uh, that I'm, I'm totally on Dr. Lee's side. Let's focus on the uh, scholarly debate in question. Let's leave our naked biases at the door as much as we can. And let's start in the hospital since this seems to be a medical issue that killed everyone in the colony. Saki has some personal motivation to go to the warehouse, as we see in this section, but also she's using another bit of scholarly information to inform her decision to be in the warehouse, even if it is personally motivated. So you can really see how this argument is playing out and the reason for ad hominem attacks to find their way into the debate. And Dr. Lee is awesome. Dr. Lee's a, a, a really awesome character, I think. Yeah, I found Dr. Lee being my favorite character in this story as well. Like that <laughs> she she was the character I wanted to, you know, the, she's the professor I want to be my Supervisor, and uh, you know, for my PhD and whatever whatever this discipline is, uh, archaeology, I guess, probably has its own own department at universities at this point. Though, actually, that's something we'll take up in the discussion. All right. Well, let's get back to Saki's story. She and the research team are in the Chronicles control room, and really, everyone is in there because everyone is hoping once Saki and Hyun Sik go on their expedition. Everyone is hoping to see their lost loved ones on New Mars. So the machine projects the two researchers who are going in, Saki and Hyun Sik. Uh, it projects them to the point uh, in space and time where the research team decided to go, which is the Xeno Archaeology Warehouse on New Mars. And then in a blip of time, Saki and Hyansik are there in the warehouse. And we learn that this is a really uncanny thing to experience. There's no sound or anything like that in the Chronicle, just the time image of the past, uh, which is a moving image. And it's a, a point of observation where they land. So the researchers mark out their location so they can returned from the exact location they were projected to. In the past, missing the mark here has led to researchers being stuck in a wall or in the ground or being projected back outside the spaceship because there's something to do with accuracy here in using the Chronicle. Uh, Saki and Han Sik then are here in the warehouse, and so they're starting to explore. Immediately, they find the artifacts that they are looking for, the artifacts that MJ had uncovered in his dig. And Saki recognizes that something's off with these artifacts. A MJ had told her that only the base of the artifact was blue when they uncovered them, but now uh, much more of this artifact is blue. And some of the tops of these artifacts have different colors, let me take a moment to describe the artifacts here. They're big, ovoid pillars, sort of. Uh, I guess they, to me, they reminded me in reading about them of the eggs that you see in uh, the Alien franchise. Anyway, Saki is here to identify things that drones that they've brought with them 
into this expedition in the Chronicle uh, wouldn't be able to identify clearly as important data. So Saki and her grad student are here to point the machines in the right direction, essentially. To, she's there to find anomalies and so on. And she sees one. She sees an anomaly. Up on the catwalk is a shimmer that usually indicates that there is a disruption in the Chronicle something that you'd maybe also find at a dig site of a cemetery if you found fresh dirt on an old grave. Saki knows that MJ had a really minimalist approach and philosophy to using the Chronicle. In other words, he thought that it was important to disrupt the record um, as little as possible. And so this disruption, this shimmer that Saki sees does look a little human-like, and she wonders if MJ had visited this place in time in the Chronicle at some point between the start of the fall of New Mars and its collapse. So she and Hyun-sik send the drones up to that shimmer to collect data around it. So this section is really telling us about the Chronicle, and something that we're going to take up in the discussion is the question of what the Chronicle is, how it functions, uh, really the the metaphysics of this, because it's super strange and, and I think super interesting, and Joachim here does a, an excellent job of telling us the limitations, telling us the rules to the extent that we can now understand the boundaries around character choices. Uh, There are obstacles that our characters have to overcome. And Joachim sets them up very well, I think. And one of the limitations is that this is a type of uh, subspace or, I don't know, a type of mirror world in which your physical location in the Chronicle maps onto a different location in the real world. And if you aren't where you're supposed to be when you switch back to the real world, you might materialize in a bulkhead or outer space, as you said, Brandon. But I just wanted to emphasize that because it's terrifying and it gives real peril to what these people are doing, not just here in this moment in this story, but what they do for a, a living. Their whole scholarly inquiry has a real danger to it that is, you know, not usually the case for, I don't know, English professors, uh, most history professors as well, <laughs> right? And uh, it's a really cool touch. And and also we do learn here what archaeology is. Uh, it's archaeology, except that instead of investigating material artifacts, you're investigating time. Uh, archaeology is Well, it's a terrible name, but to be clear, so is archaeology, right? Neither of them do what they say on the box, so so to speak. And I actually went down a a pretty deep rabbit hole of trying to come up with better names. It is not a rabbit hole that anyone else should ever jump into, and I'm not going to make it a discussion (laughs) point, but I just wanted to bring it up. Yeah, I did a lot of research myself on um, etymology here to see like, wait, wait, what does Keo mean? And then it's not that, it's archaeo for you know, archaeology uh, and try, you know, my initial thought was to break the word down the same way that um, Yoakum here has created our chronology out of uh, basically three um, 
root words, it's not the same in archaeology. And then I was like, wait, archaeology isn't what I thought it was, etymologically speaking. And yeah, I got lost too, Glenn. I think it's perfectly <laughs> natural. Perfectly natural thing to do. Good. I don't I don't feel so bad about it then. Yeah, because archaeology, we all know archaeology is you dig stuff up out of the ground and you investigate the stuff that you've dug up and also the site that you've dug up, right? It is looking, it is studying the human past through the material material artifacts of that human past, except that the word just means ancient history. It means studying ancient history, but but actually history is a different thing in the way that we have divided up these disciplines. That's something that happened in early modernity. And so, yeah, our chronology here, right, inventing a Greek neologism here is similar to the way that we put athon at the end of things, because, you know, a marathon is a really long race. So if you want to suggest that you're doing something for a really long time. You just put a thon on the end of it. And now it's not a regular, uh, now it's not a regular thing. It's a long thing, but that's not what the Greek a thon means at all. It has nothing to do with that. And so it's a neologism that really only works for, well, people who are neo, that this, these are both words that would just be nonsensical to an actual ancient Greek person. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm into languages. It's like what I do for a living. <laughs> so uh, I went down there. I was trying not to drag everyone else down with me, but we, we've done it a little bit. Not the whole, Not the whole way down. We went down like two tiers there. Yeah, sometimes uh, I think, you know, for people who are longtime listeners of the show, they realize that we might spend hours on a fixation and then it ends up being three minutes of an episode. <laughs> and uh, We've learned nothing and, and made people's lives more difficult by, by the work we do. But yeah. uh, yes, and may God have mercy on our soul. <laughs> All right. Well, let's return to the story here. We're back with the we who is speaking in italics. They let us know that they really love to expand their reach as whatever they are, some kind of maybe collective, and that, you know, they picked up that desire to expand from a past relationship. And that's really how they got here. Uh, they pick up skills from past lovers. It's something we'll need to think about just in terms of what this we who is speaking is. But in the real world of the story, everyone's doing their jobs in the reconstruction lab. Uh, and that's just the reconstruction of time. Dr. Lee is studying the artifacts that I get the feeling they 3D printed somehow, but they're very accurate uh, replications of what they picked up in the Chronicle. Uh, and Dr. Lee is now looking for differences between how these artifacts were reported by the people on New Mars and how they look now. And there are some differences. Dr. Jones, Saki, is really caught up in examining the disruption she thinks is MJ, that shimmer in the Chronicle. And both of them really lament that they can't get boots on the ground to investigate in person, even though the captain is pressuring the research team to pick up the pace of research. Part of the reason why nobody can go down to the new Mars colony in person is that none of the probes work. They launch them, they land, but they're disappearing. They're not sending back any data. Um, and I should mention here that the alien artifacts from the Xeno archaeology warehouse, they look artificial, they look manufactured. And that's not just because they're working with replications in the reconstruction lab. 
Saki has left the reconstruction lab behind, and now she's back in her quarters and drinking scotch fresh from the replicator. She's watching old vid letters from MJ, partially out of a sense of grief. Uh, Saki and MJ were supposed to use the Chronicle together to see this ancient alien civilization at its height, the one on New Mars. But also she's watching these vid letters because she wonders if there's some information in them that might help her in her current endeavor. And something does catch her attention. MJ mentions that a parakeet dies. And that reminds Saki of the order of the breakdown events in the colony uh, before people started to die of a virus. So there were a series of events that took place uh, before the, the plague became the thing that killed all the people. So she watches MJ's last vid letter. This is something that she naturally has a very difficult time doing. She hasn't really watched it too many times. Uh, it's just too hard. And in this vid letter, she hears MJ explain the catastrophic failure on New Mars. First, everything fails outside the dome and then inside of it. And then people start trying to fight something off. There's some immune system response to a virus, the doctors think, but there's nothing to be identified. No one can identify what's killing the people. So at this point, uh, Kenzo, who is Saki's son, comes in and he sees her crying. They have a conversation about the way in which each of them is dealing with MJ's death. And Kenzo reminds his mom that he lost his dad, but he's trying to move on and live life because that's what dad would have wanted. And maybe his mom should do the same thing and quit drinking so much on her own. They scuffle a little bit and then they realize they're fighting because they share the same grief and they hug it out. The most important thing in this section that you've just recapped, Brandon, is that uh, we get just a phenomenally awesome description of scotch. And <laughs> I just have to read this line. <laughs> Heavy on smoke, but light on peat, with just the tiniest bit of sweetness at the end. Uh, it's just great descriptive writing. Also sounds delicious. It's no Klingon booze. No, it's no Klingon booze, but uh, it is really tasty. And and I mean, like it really is really tasty because this is the precise description of a very real scotch. Uh, this is meant to be MJ's favorite scotch. It's something that he's actually programmed into a kind of replicator. It's not called that here, but it's a replicator from Star Trek, basically. But uh, it's actually Ardbeg. So if you would like to taste scotch that is heavy on smoke, but light on peat with just the tiniest bit of sweetness at the end, and you probably do, uh, just go get yourself a bottle of Ardbeg. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to as soon as we're done recording. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful drink. But on a more serious note, I do love this scene. I mean, we've got our principal investigator pouring a drink and then going over some files and contemplating the mystery. And this is just straight out of Hammett or Chandler. But in this case, the files are entries in a video journal, and that is straight out of Star Trek. So this scene is really, I think, just tailor-made for me, and I, I loved it. It's a great scene. You've just reminded me, though, how long it's been since I've had a, a Lefroig, uh, which is, you know, the opposite, heavy on peat, light on smoke. Yes, yes. It tastes like sweaty socks is what, what yeah. we're saying. <laughs> I haven't bought scotch in ages, and uh, my goodness, that yeah, this... 
this is now just making me miss it. Uh, but yeah, this this passage is great. And once again, uh, we're reminded that what we're keyed into here isn't the cool, you know, hard boiled um, trauma response of you know needing booze and. Uh, thinking about a case, it's really about moving through that trauma and grief. And I think that that's a great uh, variation of a theme here that we find in so many great, you know, detective type stories, and that Yoakum is really doing something special with her primary investigator. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Now, this is not a, you know, it's not a detective story, right? I don't think that we're going to have this character back in another story investigating some other, well, anything, something else. That's not what type of story this is. But with a few tweaks, it, it could be. And I, I would actually be interested in, 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 in a sequel to this story that decides that uh, Saki ought to actually leave our chronology behind, maybe because of this tragedy and uh, take up uh, private investigations. Yeah, except that Yoakum has done so much incredible work on just so many technical aspects of, I think, both philosophy and history and stuff like that in creating this machine uh, that I'd feel it would be a loss to leave it behind. And uh, I want no, Dr. I Saki <laughs> back in the machine. All right. Well, back to the story here. There's uh, an italics passage describing how investigating the record, observing and recording the record, how all of these things have an impact on that time image itself. And then after this passage, we cut to Saki and Dr. Lee in the hospital on New Mars. So obviously more investigation was needing and Dr. Lee's uh, school of thought has won out here a little bit. Uh, they are in the Chronicle, and they are at the point in time that is four weeks after the collapse of the New Mars colony. They're looking for information. Um, and that's, you know, as I suggested here, because the warehouse maybe didn't yield the results the research the research team felt they needed to find. So, right, they're in the hospital, and Saki and Dr. Lee find nothing. No bodies. No sheets on the bed, no plants in the planters. This is confounding. So much is missing, and yet no one could have taken it, right? There's no thieves around uh, stealing sheets off of beds. There's no survivors. As Saki looks around, though, she does see another shimmer, another disturbance in the Chronicle. Someone else has been to this moment. Dr. Lee suggests that they check it out this time. And since they are more colleagues than professor and student, uh, Saki trusts Dr. Lee to make responsible decisions about her own safety in the Chronicle. And so they put a plan together to go check out this place that is rather far from the mark that they need to return to. Because the Chronicle is in a weird kind of no place, moving around in it is challenging and it requires some zero G style maneuvering. But eventually Saki is able to get to the shimmer and Dr. Lee asks her if Saki can tell whether or not it's MJ. Saki can't really determine who it is, but the other observer, the evidence of the other observer is definitely human sized. And they're not looking into the hospital. They're looking out the window onto the landscape of New Mars. Now, 
Saki has seen the landscape of New Mars before in the vid letters, specifically that MJ had sent. And within the dome, at least, there had been trees and grass and other evidence of life. But as Saki looks out the window now, uh, from that vantage point in the hospital, she sees none of that. She just sees red dust on the ground. And Saki remarks to Dr. Lee now that, quote, every living thing has been destroyed. And this is really a big moment. This is a revelation because remember, the team hasn't been able to successfully land a probe on the planet, so they don't know what's there. And now Dr. Lee realizes that no one took anything from the hospital. Rather, the only things that remain are non or inorganic materials. Everything organic is gone. This is a major epiphany. What could destroy organic materials and not inorganic materials? So now Saki and Hyunsik are the ones that are back in the Chronicle. They're floating above the archaeological dig site that uh, Saki's husband MJ led on New Mars. They're at the point where MJ is uncovering these alien artifacts and they appear just as MJ described them to be, the artifacts. Um, they don't look quite like, in some respects, what they had changed into when Saki and Hyunsik investigated the warehouse. The change in the artifacts and the collapse of the colony then have to be related. The research team had sent the drones into the Chronicle to record the collapse, and it was harrowing to witness Whatever had happened after these artifacts were uncovered uh, quickly destroyed and really disintegrated all of the organic material. Once Saki and Hyunsik leave the Chronicle, Saki goes to her room and watches another vid letter from MJ and cries. I really loved these two scenes that take place inside the Chronicle. The first one is with the two professors and then the second one with you know, one professor and her grad student. And uh, in each case, Brandon, I think you, you left out the, the details that stuck with me, which are about how the Chronicle functions and what it's like to be in there. I mean, this first scene, I think is, I mean, it's really scary, right? Saki and Lee have to perform a zero G maneuver to go investigate the shimmer. And this was incredibly tense. You, you just know, right, that something is going to go wrong. And one of them is going to have to end up materializing in a bulkhead or you know something like that because that has already been teased for us. But actually, no, nothing goes wrong. Everything is fine. It was a huge relief. But nonetheless, because we'd had the danger teased to us, I was tense the just the whole way through that that scene. I thought it was awesome. And then we get this other scene that's didactic or, or pedagogical in which you know, we, the readers, get a surrogate who needs some explanations about how the Chronicle works. And this description of being outside while you're in the Chronicle, right? Being in the world of the Chronicle, this kind of alternate reality of the Chronicle, but being physically outside in it, where everything is moving strangely because of the way that time functions here. This descriptive writing also was just genuinely nauseating to me. And so it's not just descriptive writing. I mean, it's really evocative writing. Both of these scenes gave me physical sensations. I'm really glad you uh, brought 
this element of the story out because, you know, obviously when you're thinking about how to retell a story for a podcast, you have to leave a lot out. And this was really sad for me to leave out. I wanted to read these passages so much because they capture not just the strangeness of this method of investigation, but also the danger involved in it. And then also the real deep problems that these academics are encountering as they think about how to investigate. And so this is what I mean when I said Yoakum has done so much work here. The descriptions of the disruption within the Chronicle are amazing. This whole concept is incredible. And she's done the work. She's done the work to get this stuff to stick in your imagination as a reader and to make you feel the danger and discomfort in such incredible ways that like, this is too good a concept to have only one story set in. Yeah. And I I don't know, I didn't look, maybe you did, Brandon, but there, there may be more stories set in this world that uh, use the Chronicle or, or, or perhaps not use the Chronicle, but set in this world nonetheless. But yeah, this really just fills me with the feeling that I went to grad school for the wrong thing because I never got to do dangerous <laughs> zero G maneuvers and it makes me sad. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, to go into an academic discipline and have to learn how to maneuver in zero G, uh, like a, a social science discipline, that seems like I think what everybody who goes into the social sciences wishes was their job, uh, but it's never the case. You're never going to go on a spaceship and uncover the monolith on the moon or anything like that. You know, this is this is pure, uh, you know, fantasy wish fulfillment stuff, but it's handled so well and it's so awesome. You don't you don't know I'm not going to find that monolith. Don't you can't take that from me. <laughs> don't tell me what I can't do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get back to the story here. We're we're rounding third uh, and 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 nearing the end. The we who is speaking in these italics passages has a little more to say here. They tell us that once they had physical bodies with wings and scales and lots of legs and everything was blue. But every time they get into a new relationship, they change themselves, and now they're incorporeal. So while they do seek out new loves, uh, they don't merge everything into a single being or entity. They remain half themselves, and then everything else incorporates into a collective, a, quote, society of linked minds. So we're back into the research business, and we learned that uh, all of this business about whatever destroyed the new Mars colony was really just going after organic material. All of that's been understood thoroughly. The probes have been rejiggered to remove any organic substances, and now they're sent down to the planet, and they work. The research team is invested less in going into the Chronicle than, uh, than they're trying to figure out a way to neutralize the alien technology or artifacts. And this means that Saki has less to do now. So she has more time to wallow in her grief. She rewatches old videos of MJ. She's really just deeply in mourning. In the background of one of the videos, uh, one taken while the plague was accelerating, Saki sees the temporal projector that MJ had access to, uh, you know, that machine that puts a person into the chronicle. Uh, so she sees this in the background, 
MJ had recorded himself in the lab and points out in a roundabout way, in a sort of nonchalant way, an easily overlookable way, the controls of the time projector as if he were going to use the machine and go somewhere in time. And now that Saki has a little distance from her grief, she can see that more clearly. And she looks through her tears to the readout on the controls and decides that MJ is leaving her a clue so that if she were to put those times in the control panel, she might be able to see MJ again. The weird thing is, is that MJ has set the controls on his projector to the future, something that should only be theoretically possible. So obviously, Saki's going to do this. She's going to take the risk. She's going to try to go to those to that moment in time. She writes down what she sees on MJ's control panel. She sets her comm status to do not disturb. And she marks the ship's temporal projector as undergoing an unscheduled maintenance. Then she takes time to write letters to her son and her grad students and to Dr. Lee because she doesn't know if she's coming back. And then she leaves her room. Okay. Saki visits the Chronicle, but this time she's visiting the future, that date and time and place that MJ had put in his machine. So MJ and Saki see each other and they can talk and exchange hellos and I love yous. Then MJ asks Saki if her team was able to figure out what happened to the New Mars colony. This is where we get the, the breakdown if this were a mystery story. Saki says, yeah, they figured it out. Nanites were released from the alien artifacts. But now she wants to know that if MJ knew this, if he had figured it out, why didn't he put it in his reports? And he tells her that he didn't know until he examined the futures, until he looked back from this perspective. What had happened was this. The nanites absorbed all of the organic material into themselves including the people and I guess their consciousness. And once the artifacts, maybe we should say the alien consciousness realized what they were destroying sentient life, they stopped the new Mars colony then died as MJ explains it so that humanity could go on so that the nanites could learn about people. If the nanites didn't learn what they were doing was harmful to humanity, I guess they would have destroyed all organic life as it would have come to New Mars. In some of the futures that Saki can see then, a new colony has arisen and people who lost family on New Mars can visit the warehouse, the artifacts, and pay homage to their lost loved ones. It becomes a kind of memorial shrine. But Saki doesn't want a shrine. She wants MJ back. She wants her life love back. And MJ reminds her that they get this moment to say goodbye. And now that they've done that, they should go back to their perspective times and live out the rest of their life as best they can. Saki promises to go on studying alien civilizations, to continue on building their dream. They try to touch one another one last time to say goodbye, but they're both immaterial in the Chronicle. So Saki's full of tears and she knows she has to leave now or she'll try to stay forever. 
She presses the return button on her wristband and goes back to her time and place. And then she appears in the Chronicle room, the time projector room, crying. Now we get some more text from the aliens. The aliens say they learned enough about us and they love, an, they love us enough to know that they need to leave us alone. Saki realizes that the lost colony is somehow inside of the alien artifact, that they've been absorbed and that the new Mars colony really did help the aliens realize that humanity doesn't actually want to be forcibly absorbed into a superconsciousness. She closes her eyes knowing that she and the aliens will learn to communicate across time and space, even though it will be a bumpy road. And the story ends as it begins with the statement in italics, this is a love story, the last of a series of moments when we meet. What a great ending. Uh, We end with the same line we started with, and we get this lovely romantic farewell I, I definitely found it emotionally satisfying. I, I, hope, I hope everybody else did too, but it definitely worked for me. But there's some other really awesome stuff at the end of this story as well. We get a description of who is behind this italicized text. And it's just a, a great sci-fi description of space aliens, just even taken out of context. It's just cool to, to read. And then we also get a, a dangerous and illegal journey to the future. Uh, all of this is going to feed into the discussion, but it's just a, a riveting third act to this story. It is really awesome. I, I love the way this story ends. I love the way that Yoakum is able to lean into these adventure and danger moments, but never lose sight of her goal as a storyteller. You know, we've said, we said this a few times, but this story is a real, I think, masterclass, not just in um, the expectations of contemporary magazine publishing, but also just in storytelling itself. It's a deeply satisfying story. Well, Brandon, you have expressed a, a lot of enthusiasm for the storytelling gimmick here of the, the Chronicle. And I think we have both left this really awesome story longing for more of this device and more stories set in this world. And so I just want to start the discussion section of the episode today by trying to understand the Chronicle. And I, I just want to get us into this by asking you to you know, how you would describe and explain this to someone if, you know, you had an elevator's ride to do it. Like, how do you essentialize what the Chronicle is? How do you describe this? Wow. Um, (laughs) What a good question. I would say it's a machine that captures the past as a time image, uh, a series of time images that can be explored, but it is also... Uh, pseudo-material in its essence so that it can also be disrupted or destroyed. It's not a perfect record, but it is a place with material qualities to it, but it is a place in time that can be returned to. It's a terrible pitch, but that's what I got. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I think it's it's really tough to describe what this is. It It, it seems like what the machine does is make time or convert time into something spatial, like a dimension that exists spatially and that we can then go to, but that it has serious limitations in you know how we can function there. I mean, for one, there's no, there's no gravity, so you can't stand there. So this is an, an instance in which it is immaterial, right? There's no weight to it, but it is a moving record. So it's not just a 
you know, a series of images in the sense of being a series of photographs or snapshots. It's moving around you, but then there's also no sound. So uh, again, there's some real lack of physicality to it, but it is visual, right? That's, that's the thing here. And so it's difficult to really envision what would what it would be like to be in this place. I mean, Yoakum does a great job of describing what it is like to be in there, gives us the nausea and the danger of it. But I have a hard time fathoming it intellectually. I can feel the power, uh, even just in my body, of her descriptions, but it's hard to understand this uh, intellectually, I think. And then the other thing to say about it, right, is that you have to destroy recent layers in order to get to the past. And you know, I have to destroy more layers the further back you want to go. So, you know, studying yesterday, you just have to destroy the, the, the record up to that point. But if you want to study 8,000 years ago, you have to destroy everything else before then and can never access it again. So you have to really, uh, you know, presumably pick and choose what it is you're trying to, to look at. And so the real question I want to get at here, Brandon, is given these parameters, what are archaeologists doing, right? Like what kind of research can you carry out in the Chronicle? And what do you think this academic discipline is like? Before I answer that question, I have uh, just like two brief things I want to say <laughs> about what we what we were just talking about. Uh, one is that this this sense of discomfort that Yoakum is able to communicate to us is, I think, so much a feature of a lot of the weird fiction that we read that comes from our understanding of like substance dualism. And and we've brought this up a bunch, I think, with Lovecraft, how like so much weird fiction, so much cosmic horror is really a, comes down to a question of substances. And so this story is is no different with this machine that blurs the line between numinous substances and material substances. And they shouldn't interact, but they do interact in some way. And it this, these substances do follow the laws that you find in philosophy, uh, philosophical categories on the matter. So the time image world, the chronicle world can be in, influenced or impacted only by those observers who are in it, but they are not actually going to change anything about the real material world that created those time images. So there's all this really fascinating thought that... Yokum is obviously considered when inventing this machine and its function. Um, the second thing I want to say here before answering your question is uh, this is also this is like the super cool way to deal with time travel stuff in stories. So I really love this innovation on this riff on the time travel tale. And so that I, I think kind of leads me to your question to answering your question is thinking about this in some way as a time travel story where it's not that the puzzle of the time paradox that Yoakum is interested in, but the real motivations that people would have in revisiting the past and the cost of doing so. And so thematically, I think she's created this machine that allows her to explore those questions and has built in that sense of bias and debate that you'd have in a, in an academic meeting of, okay, well, why do you want to go visit the time and place where Jesus was crucified? And if you do that in 10,000 years, is that still going to be a culturally significant 
story um, or foundation for a religious movement. And so would going back now to prove or disprove something destroy the potential for someone in the future to investigate moments of their past that they might find meaningful or culturally significant or a product of, of a faith that they wish to concretize in some way, to materialize in a way that's not possible. So I think all of that stuff is going into this story. And obviously, uh, for the sake of this story, Yoakam wants to take something that happens in the recent past, the lost colony mystery, and investigate that. And that's perfect. It's perfect for this use. It is so demonstrative of the types of problems you'd have if you were in an archronological archronological department. And they're saying, okay, well, we need to discover what happened in the recent past. And we can do it so you're you're pitching an idea here, Brandon, that is, I think, straight out of a Philip K. Dick story, right? The idea that you could use this for CSI purposes, for 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 you know legal purposes, to revisit a crime scene and and say, yep, that's that's the person who who murdered. That's that's the murderer right there. You know, even though that might contradict some of the material evidence we took from the crime scene, well, I can witness it happening right here, so we can do that. So then, are you envisioning that? All these grad students who are here on this trip, uh, what they're doing is learning how to use the machine so that they can do things like forensic science. I don't think so. I think that part of the training in the discipline such as this would be to try to keep this technology from becoming mundane because of how destructive it would be to investigate certain moments in the past. But like, actually, murder is mundane enough that somebody going back to that particular place in time to solve a crime, um, to witness a crime, first of all, you'd have to get the worst people on board to do this. I don't think most murder police want to actually be witnesses to crime, to murders, you know, even if they're dealing with the the aftermath of it. I guess we call them homicide police. But uh I, so I using it in a mundane sense in that way, like what I would do if if I were to take a story and turn this technology mundane would to follow in Yoakum's footsteps would be to say that somehow this mundane investigation is destroying something that is a significant historical concern for future archaeologists. And so it'd have to be a two timeline type of story. But no, I'm saying, I'm just talking about kind of the general problems of um, the motivations behind any type of historical investigation, um, which I think you have a really different perspective on than I do. And I don't mean problems like, oh, this is a problem. I mean, like philosophical problems that are non-material and often won't change the way people approach um, their academic discipline. I guess what, I, what I'm struggling to, to get at here is I, I just want to know what these people's jobs is. What, is. what is the job they do, right? I know what my job is as a historian. It's to sift through the written record of the human past and answer questions about it and then share the results of my research with people. But what are these archaeologists doing? What are they training their grad students to do? Like what's, a, what's an archaeologist dissertation topic? I, I don't know. This is the real 
question I have, the deep question, because they, because of the way this destroys the time image record, it would require something really profoundly important in order to investigate. And I don't know what that would be. And I don't know what the findings would be. I don't know how you determine that it would be reliable because every, as this story states, every approach to any narrative is innately subjective. And so why we trust images as a more objective record doesn't really confront like the questions of, okay, where are we placing the camera? Why are we placing it there? What are we looking at? What's left out of frame? So all of these other issues go go into it the same way, I guess, if you're creating a dig site and you're you're not looking at anything outside the dig site. So everything in, I think, this type of mode of investigation has to be caveated with all of these major statements and statutes and so forth. So, yeah, I don't know what would be an investigation. I don't know how you could justify a motivation to investigate the past in this way if it meant destroying the record. And I also don't know if we should ever care what future historians want, right? But, you know, these are all questions that I have about what this machine does. But I do think investigating alien artifacts on a collapsed colony, that's a great way to use this machine. Right. And that's the one thing that we know it's used for. That That's what they're coming here to do with the, the machine is to investigate uh, this alien, this long dead alien civilization that has left few records of, of any kind that we can understand. And so here, at least we can go back in time and watch them and, and take images of them that we can bring back to the material world and share with people that will allow scholars of, of all sorts of disciplines to study them. And so, yeah, that makes perfect sense as a, a place where you would use this. You know, I do think that this has some real application for the study of the human past, though, but you do have to be careful about it. Uh, you've been talking about how this destroys the record, but it doesn't destroy the whole record. It destroys the record from now back to the point that you're investigating. You can always go back farther again, right? But it's along the way you're destroying stuff. And so you would have to, you know, if you want to get the whole record, you would have to go back bit by bit. And so you would be using this to study the very recent past, you know, for generations, really, and then move a little bit deeper and then move a little bit deeper to get each level of stratigraphy here. And so it does seem to me that what this discipline must be doing, what these scholars must be doing, is using this machine simply to catalog as much evidence as possible. I mean, not this team, right? They've obviously got a very specific thing they're set out to do here. But I can imagine archaeologists working at all the major universities in the world using this technology to create catalogs, to just catalog information from certain places. To say, set this machine up in you know, New York City and uh, London and, and Tokyo, uh, other interesting places around the world or po well-populated places around the world, and simply to create a record. I don't know where you store all that data, right? But you know, to at least use this machine to to create a, a record. And so it does seem to me that this discipline is maybe less 
scholarly and more technical, right? That it is actually more forensic and that perhaps these grad students aren't writing dissertations about attempting to uh, answer some particular historical question, but that what they're trying to do is demonstrate a technical capacity to use the machine, and they're learning how to preserve the data, how to get the best data, and and so on. That, that's kind of my sense of it. You get the sense in in what you're describing of the map becoming the territory, right? <laughs> in that way that, you know, in order to, it's, it's, in order to make a one-to-one representation of the past you have to recreate the past and and there's these reconstruction labs that we see too and so i yeah i think i think you're right the technical ability to use the machine to maneuver in zero g you know we joked about that but all that stuff would have to be part of the degree um and then choosing a research project i think would have to be uh something in the recent past something that you can um, wouldn't be able to, you know, recuse yourself from if it were a legal matter or question, uh, or if this were using, you know, legal jargon, um, something to observe and creating the research plan would involve answering the questions about why this would not be important to future historians, why placing the camera or yourself, what the mode of observation would be destructive or not destructive, why you're engaging in that philosophical approach, why you think what you want to look at is going to improve some other academic research or something like that. You know, all of that stuff, you know, they're not going to be setting this up on farms, you know? (laughs) So I guess there's always places from which a person can observe. But yeah, I think, I think you're right. And I think, I think it would be insane to generate so much data on the past that you couldn't store it anywhere or to turn the map of the past into the territory. Um, Yeah. I think all these questions are raised in this story itself. And that's, I think part of its brilliance. Well, the thing that I would want as, as a trained historian, the thing that I would want, if this were a tool that were available to me, would be for more texts from the period I study, which is the the fifth and sixth century in the Western Mediterranean and and Northwestern Europe. I, I want more texts. So I want to send archaeologists back to places where uh, texts were being produced and uh, have them sit around and take pictures of open books and open scrolls so that I have more written data from the period that I study. <laughs> that's that's what I want. I don't I don't want any descriptions of you know what you know actions that people were taking or anything like that. I just want more evidence of the, the of the type that I use in my discipline. And you know I was you know, in the middle of reading this story got you know down a pretty deep rabbit hole of, of fantasizing about that and really just daydreaming about you know what you know if i had only one shot at this i could use this machine for 1 hour you know where would i want to send it what uh, what repository of texts would i want to get at where would i think i would have the most uh, you know the best chance to find books or scrolls that are actually open such that we could get images of them in the moment and and so on and to my mind that's what this is really useful for and it's you know it is something i wish we had it would be really cool it would be very interesting it would certainly be changing uh humanities disciplines and maybe to some extent social science disciplines as well just all the time if we had access to a machine like this and i i want to i want more stories about this i think it's very cool i really do too and i want more adventure stories uh 
with this machine um yeah. you know but, and, and uh th- this love story is great i mean this is really gr- a great story about grief and um desire and and longing and the cost of love but um uh, I, I could have used i think two clicks up on the you know adventure volume knob uh just because it's such an awesome concept well, I want to keep thinking about the Chronicle here before we move on to the the other two topics I've I've got on the agenda, Brandon. And and it's because it turns out, right, that you can go to the future in the Chronicle as well. And so does that then mean that the future is set? I think this story is really firmly saying the future is not set. The description of the future in the Chronicle is really a description of uh of of uh, fractal images of looking at time as though it's a kaleidoscope and somehow navigating that means inserting yourself into the position of the observer in that specific place and time where you can get the results you want. Um, so I, yeah, I would say that this is non-deterministic in that sense that, uh, there are many possible futures in the chronology can present many, if not all of them, to you if you decide to go in the future. Yeah, that seems like a very different type of device than the way it's presented when we're looking at the past. I'm I'm interested that the same machine, the same device, can do both of those things because the you know the physics of of unveiling a visual record of the past is, I think, different than the physics of unveiling a vision of a possible future. Uh, that's not really explored here, which is just fine. The story's exploring a lot, but I think it's a really interesting question. And I think if I were going to pitch a sequel, this might actually be where I would want it to go. I would want more exploration of, of what this means about the future. I think that's where you could get your adventure story for sure. Yeah. I mean, really the, the question would be in what way is this machine tied to causalities, you know, is this just recreating causality in the past from knowledge of the present? And so the future is blowing outwards because of all the uh, causalities that could be. And is the past really of the, the machine really just a recreation of the past? Is it a true image? You know, you could really dig into questions of causality um, given what the machine is you know the word time projector is used here and i think that's a really fascinating way to describe the device and and it maybe indicates that it is just giving you a recreated image but the machine could be really interesting if it was not recreating images but recreating a causality that led to the present and and of course i do just wonder about the physics of this as well so there's a ton here i think for more stories about this device but there's more going on in this story than just the chronicle i want to talk about these aliens they are a sentient species that's very unlike us and we encounter them through these italicized passages that begin every section but these are disjointed in the narrative, right? And we and we also just don't realize that that's even what they are right away. We're a good way into the story b- before we understand what the italics sections actually are. So I thought it might be interesting, Brandon, and, and maybe even useful to put them together as their own narrative and just read that into the microphone. Uh, it's not short, so you and, and listeners will have to indulge me here, but I do have some questions at the end of this. 
So here's what this reads like when we just put this alien text all together. This is a love story, the last of a series of moments when we meet. We did not create the Chronicle. We simply discovered it, as you did, layer upon layer of time, a stratified record of the universe. When you visit the Chronicle, you alter it. Your presence muddles the temporal record as surely as an archaeological dig muddles the dirt at an excavation site. In the future, human archaeologists will look back on you with scorn, much as you look back on looters and tomb raiders. But we forgive you. In our early encounters, we make our own errors. How can we understand something so alien before we understand it? We act out of love, but that does not erase the harm we cause. Forgive us. There is no objective record of the moments in your past. You filter reality through your thoughts and perceptions. Over time, you create a memory of the memory, compounding bias upon bias, layers of self-serving rationalizations or denial or nostalgia. Everything becomes a story. You visit the Chronicle to study us, but what you see isn't absolute truth. The record of our past is filtered through your minds. We did not begin here. The urge to expand and grow came to us from another relationship. They came to us, and we learned their love of exploration, which eventually led us to you. It doesn't matter that we arrive here before you. We are patient. We will wait. Someone chooses which part of our story is told. Sometimes it is you, and sometimes it is us. We repeat ourselves because we always focus on the same things. We structure our narratives in the same way. You are no different. Some things change, but others always stay the same. Eventually, our voices will blend together to create something beautiful and new. We learned anticipation before we met you, and you know it too, though you do not feel it for us. Layers of information diminish as they recede from the original source. In archaeology, you remove the artifacts from their context, change a physical record into descriptions and photographs. You choose what gets recorded, often unaware of what you do not think to keep. Your impressions, logged in books or electronically on tablets or in whatever medium is currently fashionable, are themselves a physical record that future researchers might find when you are dead and gone. One of our beloveds believes that all important things are infinite. Numbers, time, love. They think that the infinite should never be seen. We erase vast sections of the Chronicle out of love, but this infuriates some of our other beloveds. To embrace so many different loves scattered across the galaxy is difficult to navigate. It is not possible to please everyone. We had a physical form once. Wings and scales and oh so many legs. Everything in iridescent blue. Each time we encounter a new love, it becomes a part of who we are. No, we do not blend our loves into one single entity. The core of us would be lost against such a vastness. We always remain half ourselves, a collective of individuals, a society of linked minds. How could we exclude you from such a union? This is a love story, but it does not end with happily ever after. It doesn't end at all. Your stories are always so rigidly shaped. Beginning, middle, end. There are strands of love in your narratives, all neat and tidy in the chaos of reality. Our love is scattered across time and space, without order, without endings. We know you better now. We love you enough to leave you alone. This is a love story. The last of a series of moments when we meet. All right, so that's it. As I said, it's a lot. That was over 600 words. And there's also just a, a lot of material here. But the first question I want to ask Brandon is just, 
what is this text? It's written in the first person. It is addressed to a second person. So it seems like it's a letter, but to whom is it addressed and how is it delivered? Yeah, to me, this is uh, the reflections of the alien consciousness that is, I think, you know, in literary terms, playing with the devouring mother <laughs> archetype. Um, this kind of love is a needy and destructive love. And it's written to humanity after they absorbed the new Mars colony into the artifact where both this consciousness and all of its other absorbed consciousness consciousnesses live. And that's what I, that's what I get. This is a kind of discoverable future vid letter sort of thing where this artifact or the entity inside of it believes because love is infinite, that it will eventually be able to absorb humanity into itself in a way that is acceptable to humanity, though that's questionable. Yeah, I like this idea that it it's, if I'm understanding you correctly, this idea that it is the alien consciousness talking to the humans of this new Mars colony whom it's just ingested. It's just killed them and ingested them to make them part of its collective consciousness and is now explaining the situation to them, I guess. That, that's not, that isn't what I thought was going on, uh, but I think that's a better answer to the question than what I had. Uh, yeah, that that's a uh, that's a tweak on what I said, but it's a better one. So okay, yeah, I think <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think they what what I was describing was the alien consciousness that this would be something that you, you know Doctor Jones might be able to pull out of this as they, she learns to communicate with the alien technology, mostly because this story does remind me of the film Arrival, which is based on the story of your life and others uh, by Ted Chang, um, has this kind of sense that Dr. Jones will eventually learn to communicate with this entity. But I like what you said just then uh, much better, that this is an explanation of you know these moments where this entity found humanity, accidentally absorbed a bunch of people into its uh, super consciousness, realized it's not going to do that for the rest of humanity, but it might in the future because it's it's nature to expand based on what it's learned from a, a past relationship. Um, yeah, it's basically a, a bad girlfriend type of, type of deal here. Yeah, it does seem like there is something in this text that implies uh, the expectation that humans eventually will want to be devoured and become part of this galaxy-spanning right, right. consciousness, which is terrifying. Like, this could have been written as a cosmic horror story, but it's, it has, it's not. It has all the elements, and that's kind of what I was trying to get at with the with the substance dualism bit, um, though, you know, poorly expressed, is that this story has all of the ingredients for a truly terrifying cosmic horror story, but Yoakum went a different direction with it. And I think that although we're doing this episode on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, I think this is a great story to exemplify the definition of weird fiction that we use on Elder Sign, which is to see weird as a mode of storytelling that is on one, of a, one end of a spectrum with wonder 
at the other, and that you can tell the same exact story in those different modes or at different points along that spectrum with very different results. Because you definitely could tell this exact same story on the weird side of that spectrum and make it a cosmic horror story. But Yoakam here has this on, I think, definitely the wonder side of this spectrum. Absolutely. Dr. Jones is here for the wonder. She is... She wants to be reminded of the wonder in the universe after suffering this great tragedy. And that's what she's looking for in all these old tapes to feel that sense of love she had for her, you know, life love, which is even a kind of term of wonder, a kind of spin on partnership or something like that, um, that she at the end resolves to go out and find new Xenoarchaeological sites to dig and investigate alien civilizations. I mean, that is her motivation. Her want as a character is to rediscover wonder. And so that's the spine of the story, really. Well, I want to keep thinking about this story as wonder fiction, but I'm going to take this in kind of a, a, a perhaps unexpected direction, or at least un, unexpected by you, Brandon. As, <laughs> as I said at the top of the show, this is a really great Star Trek episode. And I, I don't mean that. Yoakim has ripped this idea off from Star Trek. Rather, what I mean is that this is exactly the type of story that Star Trek would get as a spec script and then tweak and adapt and mold into a Star Trek story. And I think that would be a fun exercise. And I'm, I'm going to put us through this as the, the last item on the discussion here. So first things first, Brandon, I guess, which Star Trek show of the many Star Trek shows there are, do you think would be best suited for this story? Is this a, a Kirk story? Is it a, a Captain Archer story, a Picard story? What do you think? I think it's a data story. But so yeah, TNG is is where I'd put it. Um, and this, you know, this I think would be a, a data story where data is the investigator. And I'd, you know, play with him being inorganic in some way and being able to do some things that other people cannot. Um, maybe a data and a Jordy story so you can get the unrequited love or the lost love piece of it uh, in a holodeck recreation or something like that. Uh, that's where I would go with it. I, I'd play with data's being inorganic on, on to the level enough where he could maybe investigate this well, I think that's a great idea. I, I, I like the idea of using data here because he's a person who is inorganic as someone who can perhaps go down to this planet while the plague is still raging, but he'll be left alone because he's not organic material and that that can be a starting point. Because definitely one of the things that we would have to tweak to suit this story for any of the Star Trek show settings is we would have to get rid of the Chronicle, right? That's just not a thing that exists in the Star Trek universe. So we would have to have some other way to investigate what this plague is. And, and that then would become the real focus of the episode would be the idea of this alien species that is a massive galaxy-spanning collective consciousness that has the capacity somehow to consume organic material and turn it into pure consciousness that exists somehow, right? That's the mystery that's actually going to be investigated, or rather that's going to be the solution to the mystery that's being investigated. But we're going to have to solve that mystery without the the Chronicle, which, you know, of course, 
we, we've spent the bulk of our time talking about here and think is a really cool right. idea for this story. But yeah, I like that hook for data. I think another possibility here would be to use one of the shows that has someone with some kind of telepathic abilities in order to communicate with this consciousness. Uh, this is something that we have in really most of the Star Trek shows. You know, you could use Spock in this role. Uh, or you could use T'Pol from Enterprise. Really, you could use any Vulcan in this role if you if you wanted to. Uh, you could also use Troy. You know, so if this were going to be a TNG episode, you could use Troy and Data in these two roles, kind of working together, which I think is actually what I would do. And I think the reason I would do that ultimately is that because this is starting out as an archaeological mission, or, or well, it has an archaeological component to it in in that this is what the humans are doing or part of what they're doing on this planet of New Mars to begin with, is that uh, archaeology was Picard's major at Starfleet Academy. That's right? So right. you've got three characters here, I think, are well suited to be the principal characters for this this you know conversion, the adaptation of this into a Star Trek episode. And if you wanted to add the love story element to it, Picard has that like archaeology girlfriend. <laughs> you could have her be imperiled or or even send out the um you know sos that gets the enterprise involved and you know maybe she dies or something because she's only in a few episodes and everybody needs a vacation archaeology girlfriend i guess absolutely yeah she's the actual indiana jones character i mean she's just like that was just Star Trek wanting to capitalize on the success of The Last Crusade. Uh, you know, MacGyver did the same thing. I think every TV show did the same thing. Uh, Elizabeth and I haven't gotten to that Murder, She Wrote episode yet, but I'm sure that I'm sure that J.B. Fletcher is going to find the Holy Grail or something at some, yeah, at some in point. Yeah, in a cove, in, in Cabot Cove. In, 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 you know, Cabot Cove's real cove. Oh, man, I would love, I would love that. Well, now we're getting too many layers into pitching a 1980s television episode. So uh, I think now that we have picked Star Trek The Next Generation as the uh, the place to adapt, as, as the Star Trek show that's best suited for the adaptation of this, I'm going to close this episode out. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects as always, at Clay Temple Media, we have to say thank you again uh, for for this episode commission. Uh, not only I think hopefully we demonstrated how much we love this story, but it, it's so imaginative. Uh, it got us thinking about stories in so many different ways. So this was such an awesome choice. And thanks for the commission again. Yeah, thank you so much. This story was so rich. I, I honestly, I just can't wait to read it again at some point. Just it's just a beautifully written story. There's so much joy here. It was really awesome to get a chance to do this. Uh, really great as well. Just to to sink our teeth into some contemporary science fiction. I don't get to do that a lot. Uh, so awesome. So thank you so much for that. And until next time, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>